Okay, back here with my buddy Bill Wilikowski. How you doing, Jeff? Good to see you, Senator. Uh, again, elect you. Uh, you. Be, I was just looking this up. You won in 06. You were 38. Yeah, that sounds about right. I'm 37 right now. So <laughs> you got one year to go, Jeff. Do I, do I have time? You got time. When you were first elected, you were one of the. I think Lisa McGuire. She. I don't know if she was in the Senate yet, but you guys are probably about similar. Yeah, I was. I was one of the youngest ones. I still am. <laughs> it, well, there's a new new group of people coming in here. And David Wilson's kind of yeah. David Wilson's younger. That's true. But yeah, I mean, with Gary and Bird and people and you know people Lyman, get, they yeah people get in the Senate and they're there for years, decades. It's interesting. Um, I don't want. We're going to talk about the school, the school district stuff. That's why you're in here. But but um, I will say that with this recent election, we we talked about this in our live stream. But every two years, the Senate maybe has one, maybe two pe- new people. But this year, with redistricting and then people not running. There's going to be, I think, six or seven new. I got to go check the numbers again, but like Bjorkman and Clayman um, and Kelly Merrick and uh, Jesse Bjorkman, uh, James Kaufman. There's, a, I think, a few. There's a big, big turnover. I mean, you've been there a long time. And it is big turnover. And, and I think that's good. I think turnover is good. I think the new energy, the new ideas is good. Uh, I was meeting with some some of the new people recently and, and so some of the older people who have been around for a while actually. And, and one of the newer people said, uh, one of the things we should really focus on this year is, is figuring out the fiscal plan. Why don't, why, let's, why don't we just do that this year? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Forrest Dunbar is another one. Yes. Well, and, uh, and I just, you know, you know, some of the people who had been around for a little while just smiled and said, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like we've been trying to, I haven't been fixed that for 30 years, 40 years. But you know, people come in with new ideas, and and uh, and there are different mandates, and and maybe that'll be the energy that we need to, to get off the dime. Well, I mean, after I've I've spent the last four years down there, and when I was younger, when I first ran, I used to have this kind of idea of just you know fucking get rid of all of them, start over. And what I've realized, like we saw in twenty eight nineteen, when you have a lot new a lot of new people, it makes it very difficult to to just function um, on a basic level because of just not familiarity with the rules and procedures and customs and norms. I mean, is that going to be in the Senate though? I mean, Merrick and Clayman were already in the house. So they're kind of in Kaufman too. But when you get like the house is going to have a whole bunch of new people that have never been to Juno before. You know, it's, it's new dynamics. It, it is new energy. I think you need, I think it's, it's good to have a good mix of people who have institutional knowledge. People who have been there for a while. People understand how the process works, understand where the political landmines are. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's good to have, but I also think it's good to have people who are, you know, super optimistic, uh, haven't, haven't been a little bit jaded by the failures uh, in the past. It's sort of like sports, right? You ever see a sports team and uh, you know, maybe, maybe a team, bunch of old, you know, guys who've been around together for a while. And then you get somebody new in there, a couple of new guys, and it just gives them this jolt of energy. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a little bit like that. You get new people in there. It just, changes the dialogue, changes the dynamic a little bit. So I think it's a good, it's good to have that blend. I mean, speaking of Jada, we've had conversations before after some finance committee thing happens, I, I you know, something you're really pushing for doesn't go. And I, and you're like, Oh yeah. And I'm just <laughs> like, well, that's how, that's how it goes. And like years ago, you'd be kind of activate, you get kind of upset, you get, you know, you're, you're, you're angry, but now it's like, Oh, well, fucking well you, four votes. I <laughs> think you become a little, I think at least for me, I've become more pragmatic. I think, you know, certainly when I got elected at, 
And I still have things that I feel really passionate about, really want to get done. But in the end, you've got to be pragmatic about it. And, in, and you know, I, I, I'm pretty active on social media and I, and I have people tell me, well, why don't you just do this? Why don't you just do that? And I'm like, do you understand the dynamics of how this works, particularly when you're in the minority? The majority sets everything. They have every committee chairmanship. You know, in the Senate, we've had 65% Republican. And people are like, why don't you just get this done? Why don't you just pass this bill or pass that bill? And, uh, and then you, you got to look, well, you've got the Senate, you've got the composition there and you've got the house and then you've got the governor and, and people it's, 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 it's tough to get bills passed. It's tough to get legislation passed. And so, you know, I've become more pragmatic, I think. And I think, uh, that's what I've needed to do. And yeah, I used to get, it used to burn me up when I would see things and it still does sometimes, uh, you know, the way that just bills and things make such common sense to me. And, and you can't get them done, for, mm-hmm. you know, just for political reasons or whatever. And it still is frustrating, but now I try to find pragma- pragmatic solutions. I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to be able to do that. I understand that. Uh, I still push for it, but now, you know, people send us down there to get things done. And, and ultimately, we got to try to figure out how to get things done and get along. And, and so, you know, I'll work with anybody. And, and I remember when I first got elected, um, we had uh, in the Senate in 2006, you had... 11 Republicans and nine Democrats and kind of like now it's going to yeah, be kind of like now. Right. And, and we had an offer to join a bipartisan coalition and the, the people who opposed it the most, the people who pushed me the most against doing that from joining with really, really conservative legislators like Charlie Huggins and Lida Green and uh, the people who pushed hardest against that were, were my Democrats, democratic yeah. friends, right? You're like, you can't possibly join with that. And I, and I said, yeah, hey, how do you expect us to get things done? You send me down there. You want us to get things done. You got to work with them. They have a majority, right? And so if you want us to get things done, well, I remember work together. When, when Tuckerman was chair of the party, he really kind of, after the election, was pushing for, you know, a certain organization. But I remember Randy Redick told me a long time ago, you know, you, you fight to get your people elected. But after that, it's up to them. You have to let, you have to let them do it because that's all that's... It's all you can really do is let the, the people in there mm. figure it out. Right. And, th- and this is why, you know, again, I, um, people get frustrated and they, and, and you gotta, I don't, I don't know if people don't understand it or don't want to understand it, but you know, you may have elected somebody by an overwhelming number in, in your district and you can look in you can look in the Valley. You can look in, in some of the liberal districts in Anchorage, but you have to work together with all these people. And, and you know, there's going to be, you know, there are, is a diversity of opinions. One of the things with democracy, and this is, um, I think, something that uh, has really struck me over the years, is this: the system was designed to be slow and grinding and not result in radical change. And it's very different than a parliamentarian system, where in a parliamentary system, the party gets elected and they control the entire government. Right? Mm-hmm. And and it, this is very different in that, you know... And, 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 and that system, if something goes really bad they can have a snap they can have a snap election and basically have a whole new whole, whole new snap government snap election whole new government and you know you can certainly debate the pros and cons of which one's better which one's worse but but our system is designed to have checks and balances all throughout the process and with those checks and balances it makes it extremely difficult to get uh, significant pieces of legislation passed in any direction and so what tends to happen is you you sort of work around the edges and you try to get very small, minor change, because you've got, you know, this year, 
look at the numbers. You're going to have a majority of Republicans in the Senate, a majority of Republicans probably in the House, and you're going to have a Republican governor. And so, you're, you know, you might see coalitions form, but even then you still have to pass bills by 11. Well, I'm, I'm kind of reminded of the HB 110 era. This is the old oil tax bill that was a predecessor of SB 21. They tried forever. And then they basically, after redistricting, they kind of got that Senate. They killed, they killed the coalition in 2012 and 13. And then they fought it again and they tried for many years and you were opposed to it. Um, and they got it passed 11 to nine. Right. SB 21, which, which, you know, you're right. It took a lot, long time to change and a whole, you know, changing districts. And <laughs> <laughs> it took, uh, well, it passed in 07 and it didn't change until 2013. So yeah, it, it stayed in effect all those years. And, and, you know, that issue is still lives on <laughs> to, to, to some degree to this day. Um, but is it, will, would there be radical change to oil taxes? No, there's just, the votes just aren't there. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, it's an issue I feel strongly about. Everybody knows that about me, but but I also understand, hey, the numbers just aren't there. That's and, that's that and the dividend. That's your those are your issues. Well, those are two of my issues. You know, education now is a huge issue in my district because I've got tools, two schools on the chopping block, and and I, you know, public safety is always an issue. So there are a lot. There are always community issues, and then the, of course there's always the issues. Uh, and I tell people this, you know, that the I think probably the thing that keeps getting me elected, quite frankly, is just constituent work. Is just work on people calling me and you know, having issues with getting their dividend, for example, they, they filed it late or maybe they um, having some immigration problem with a family member or they didn't get their Denali kid care or the road isn't plowed or their streets aren't cleaned. Those are the issues, I think, that if you help someone address those issues and you get them fixed, or even if you just try, uh, they'll remember that and they tend to remember that. When, when something like a road comes up, how are, are, you, are you like old school where like you get on the phone and it's like if this road isn't plowed, your budget is on the block or are you like, Hey, can you guys please do the, I mean, how do you, what's your Uh, approach to that kind of thing? I'm, I'm, I try to be a little more diplomatic than that, but you know, fight, look, I'm, I'm a lawyer by trade and I've labor lawyer too. I've I've been a lawyer for many years and, and, and the job of a lawyer is to, to zealously represent your client. And that's the way I feel about this job as, as a legislator, as a Senator is my job is to zealously represent the people in my district. And so, so yeah, I'm, I'm, Hey, I, I will always try to be polite and try to get things done and, you know, easily as possible. But, but absolutely. If, if, if my constituent, if you're harming my constituents, if you're not helping my constituents, I will fight. I will zealously represent them uh, as much as I can. Well, I think going back to before you said, you know, pragmatic and trying to get, things done understanding there's a lot of people and you have to get consensus um i think one of the things that that people are aware of specifically with you is if if they really piss you off you will introduce amendments that they fucking hate like they they just amendments that whether it's on the floor or the finance committee and they just don't want to deal with them but they have to hear the amendment so i think knowing that about you they're probably willing to work with you a little more and say look okay like let's give you this Will you cool it over here with this other stuff? Is that fair? Uh, you know, there there have certainly been times where people have filed um, what I'll call um, I'll call stupid bills, bills that are, are just kind of ridiculous that are politically oriented. And yeah, if you file stupid bills, I'm going to file amendments to 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 make you regret filing those bills. <laughs> that's that's what, been a what, philosophy. What's of mine. one you did? There was one. Um, it was like a culture war. What was it? You tried to do something to a bill 
some amendment. I forget what it was. And it was like, they hated it so much. Well, what was that one? Um, oh, there, there, there've been a number of bills like, um, you know, years ago we, there was this, um, Oh, wasn't it like a, something with abortion? Oh, there was some amendment about, well, there's always the social issues and, 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 you know, I, well, we had the transgender bill this past year and, and we ran, you know, we, we found some pretty significant issues with those. You know, one of the issues with the transgender bill that was filed this year, lots of legal issues. And, and I, I typically look at these things from a, a legalistic perspective. So, so on the transgender bill, for example, it had a requirement that um, the, uh, I think the school board was going to have to pay if they filed these, if they, pa- if they didn't comply with the law. And so I ran amendments to say, well, um, the state should have to pay because we're putting this requirement on and, and um, we're requiring people in, in, in our opinion, there, there's pretty clear federal law. There was a Supreme court decision. There's federal guidance saying that this is a violation of federal law. And so, so we ran amendments and said, well, if we're going to force school boards to pay for these things, we should pay for them. You know, it's a, otherwise it's an unfunded mandate. So, you know, we do little things like that. There, there was bills years ago, um, which said, uh, you know, we always, we, it was a federal balanced budget bill and, uh, it, it was, they were trying to pass uh, some constitutional convention saying we got to have a federal balance budget, which, which actually I don't think is a terrible thing, but just the way it was written was flawed. So for example, we, we ran amendments to say, well, okay, you got, what it said was um, if the federal budget isn't balanced, then you get 10% cuts across the board or X percent cuts across the board. And so we said, well, what if there's uh, like social security, like you're going to cut 10% of social security right off the board and I think most people would say no. So we were on amendments to say to exclude social security. <laughs> and then they're on the, all, so all on the record voting against that. And we were on amendments saying, well, you're going to cut veterans benefits. And of course we, you know, people had to vote against that. And we ran amendments saying you're going to cut disabled, you know, excluding disabled veteran benefits. Cause, cause basically it's the, in, the, in the old, now it's different now how it's been, but in the old ways, a majority would have to vote with a majority. Yeah. So you're putting them in kind of on notice. Right. So we're like, Hey, you know, you can have this balanced budget and, I, and which actually, May, may not be a terrible idea, but you, you need to have some, some exclusions for them. Like really you want, you want them to start cutting benefits for disabled veterans uh, to balance the budget. I think most people would say no. So, you know, taking a sledgehammer to a lot of these budget ideas generally doesn't work. And this was the point that we were trying to make. And yeah, it was uncomfortable for a lot of them to have to vote against that. Well, earlier you mentioned, that's what I wanted to talk to you about was um, these school closures. There's six schools, a couple are in your district. I think Nanaka Valley, there's Clat, Clat's not your district, but there's what, six schools of school boards proposing to shut down. Correct. Now, when this came, now, for the folks listening, there's a huge, almost $70 million shortfall in the AST budget, which t- to me is very puzzling because over the last 20 years, there's less students, but the budget goes up and there was this COVID and, in, 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 you know, kind of inject, in, injection of money uh, one time and now they're at a big deficit. So... That's the news. That's the kind of announcement. And then they say, okay, we're going to close six schools. So first thing I heard, first time I heard it was like, well, I, I guess, you know, I, I don't know how they're at a deficit. That's crazy. But okay, I guess you got to close the schools. But then they're saying it's going to save like $3 million. Right. So you, you said something interesting. And then since we talked last week, I've made some calls and there was all these meetings, these ASD meetings on the proposed closures. And one of the things they say, the school board is, oh, the base student allocation hasn't been increased. And they're kind of blaming somewhat the legislature, the state for not, you know, giving more money for these, for these schools. But you asked on the record 
okay, well, if we can figure that out, will you guys keep the schools open? And they were like, uh, <laughs> so the more I looked into this, and I want you to talk about this, I think maybe these schools were already on the chopping block. Yeah. Before any of this deficit thing happened. Right. They were. Right. And, and I've heard this. Um, this is the Rahm Emanuel, the don't let a crisis go to waste. Right. That's, that's, so, so first of all, let, let me just say this. <clears throat> Costs go up in the school district every year. You've got, even though you have less students, you still have fixed costs. You still have to heat the buildings, for example. And that cost doesn't change very much. In fact, it goes up. You still have to pay the teachers, and those costs have gone up. You still have inflation. Those costs have gone up. So costs go up every year, and every year that you flat fund education, then it's, it's, like, a, it's, like, a cut it's basically of. a cut, right? So, so, we ha- so the, the formula, there's a very complex formula that determines how much each school gets. But the foundation of that is called the base student allocation. And we're kind of unique, Alaska, from other, I mean, other states fund educate, but a lot of times it's more local. But the state in, in Alaska, the state, I, I assume, kicks in more money to the, to the schools than other states do. Yes. And that is in large part because, well, number one, we have a constitutional obligation to fund education. There are multiple Supreme Court cases on that. And number two, there are many communities in Alaska that don't have any ability to tax that have no revenue base at all. Much of rural Alaska, like the unorganized borough, and- unorganized boroughs, no tax base whatsoever. And so the state in that, in those cases has a constitutional obligation to fund those schools. And so in Alaska, yeah, we, we, the formula is $5,800 or so per student, but then it, it changes depending on the size of the school. It changes on your geographical location, a variety of factors, special ed needs, things like that. And so the state has not increased that amount in I don't know, six, six years or so. And so you've had flat funding that whole time. And in fact, there have been cuts over the years to education. So yeah, we've got to increase the BSA. Let me just say that. And that's number one. Number two, in my opinion, you got to inflation proof it so that we're not having this fight every year. Just tag it to inflation. It's going to increase automatically. Kind of like permanent fund. I mean, they, they don't have it built. They, they do it. It's not, it's not mandated, but when they, when they, transfer to the fund, they, they do the inflation proofing. Well, even that is, you're supposed to inflation proof it by the statute, but even that is, there is you're supposed to, but it's, you don't have to, again, according sometimes, to- the, Sometimes, yeah, they haven't, for a couple of years, they didn't. Yeah, for years we didn't. And then and then in the last few years, we actually fu- forward funded inflation proofing by billions of dollars. So, but back to the school district, yeah. So we have not increased the base to allocation. So that's number one. You got to increase that. You got to inflation proof it. You should, I, I think we should be passing either- an education budget, maybe, maybe a full on budget every two, you know, do it every two years so that you pass the budget. And then the next year, you did a lot of dis, a lot of school, a lot of States do that. Like the mental health trust, they have, they have their own budget. Well, what I'm talking about is you pass a two year budget basically. And, and then uh, many States do that. And then what that does is it gives school districts predictability. It gives the communities, all, all the organizations. So you you pass it in the first legislature and then the second one, you don't have to worry about second it. Second one you come in, you know, there may need to be some changes to it, but the, the second one you come in and you focus on bills, you focus on personal legislation. Uh, you can still focus on those things in the first one as well, but your main focus that first year is passing your budget. And then there's you know, two years, you've got some predictability, stability, consistency. That's another thing you could do. The other thing, the, the fourth thing you could do is you could require that the school budget, the education budget pass by say February. Um, it's it's you know, tough to do, a challenge. But if you put your mind to it, I mean, shoot, a couple of COVID, 
two years ago. We, we oh, were out Mar- in March. Everything was yeah, done. We were on 65 days or so. So you can do it. It's just requiring political willpower. So you do those things, those few things, and all of a sudden you, you're not in quite the situation that you are right now. Because education is a huge, education, healthcare, like it's huge. 60% of the, the budget. It's huge. Yeah, it's enormous. So it's, you know, $1.3 billion in state, state funds. So, so, but you're right. Uh, what I've heard is that these schools were on the chopping block, that they were looking to do this three or four years ago, but then COVID hit and that derailed everything. And that sort of clicked on me. I heard members of school board say this. Um, and then when we came out and saw the numbers that, yeah, there's a $68 billion deficit or $68 million deficit, but you're only saving three, $3.4 million. It was like, wow, that's, uh, that doesn't it's like make pennies. sense. It's pennies, right? And then- and then on top of that, one school in my district, Nunaka Valley, for example, that school is only going to save $245,000. And actually within a, a couple of years, that savings is completely gone because- How many, do you know how many students go there to Nunaka Valley? About 175 or so. But you've also have a, a number, what they've done at Nunaka Valley, for example, is they have a number of classrooms that are pre-K. And so, th- so this is an idea that I've been- talking to school board members about and, and really sort of advocating for it. I had a meeting with the school district uh, with a number of other legislators this past week is these schools that they're looking at closing. What are the, what are the problems that we're hearing across the district, across the state? One of the huge problems is childcare. And so with the Reads Act that we just passed, you have pre-K now, you have young kids that the state could be funding at 50% the base student allocation and what you could do is you could convert these schools and you could have a number of different classrooms where you're having early childhood education, pre-K education. Maybe you could have a sliding scale so that wealthier parents pay a little bit um, or maybe the full amount at, at a certain income level. But I think we've got to start using our schools, uh, making them more community-based, making them open and available for other things, um, particularly the ones that aren't being fully utilized. So, so that's one thing that I've been pushing and supporting. But, but the real kicker, the thing that um, sort of struck me, and uh, we, we, we really learned about this at the Nanaka Valley Town Hall, and, and I know they've talked about it at other town halls, is, you know, they're looking at closing six schools, five Title I schools, Title I schools, low-income schools. And they're also looking at the same time of funding $37 million to build a school that the voters rejected at Inlet View. <laughs> Which is a wealthy... Well, within LaVue, I will say that's a couple of examples of NIMBY people who don't want... Because there, there, there's a school there, they were going to destroy it, and then well, they were going to build a new school next to it because it's an old school. And then these five kind of people, two are very outspoken, have been yelling about their view, to the, you know, and, and then they've gotten involved with the bond. And um, I mean, I think that in that case, you're right, they are spending a lot of money on a, on a higher income school in downtown, but it is some NIMBY folks that are worried about losing their view. You know... I don't, it's out of my district and I voted for, it. I, you know, I vote for the school bonds. I voted for it this past year. I support whatever needs to be done to save that school. But I think the optics look terrible when you're saying we're going to close five title one schools and another school and, and then build a really, really save, nice school in the middle of like, right, downtown. Exactly. I mean, the optics are just horrendous. And, and it got me thinking, this isn't really about the money because that money that $37 million they want to use to build that new school, they can use to keep these schools open. They can use to fill the budget gap. And so this got me thinking, this is, this is about something bigger. This is about something different than just, you know, saving money. Uh, and we've asked, what are your plans on how, how are you going to save the other uh, 
forty million dollars. That you know, the, well, the other, quite frankly, if you're three million of a sixty-eight million dollar deficit, where are you going to get save the other sixty-five million dollars? And we don't really have a clear answer on that yet. So, so yeah, I, closing these schools, particularly, uh, I know the ones in, in in Nanaka and Wonder Park, would be devastating for that local communities. I mean, there are people who a lot of it's lower income. A lot of people don't have cars, and and they say, well, you can just move the you know, have the kids go a, a mile or two away. Um, it, having little kids walk a mile or two from, you know, they're already walking to the school now um, across major highways is... Um, yeah, when it's like below zero. When it's below zero. And, and you know, they're like, well, we'll have bus service. Well, you don't have bus service yeah. now. I mean, right? the, the, so. this is like the, cr- the craziest thing. Um, when I heard this a few months back about the buses, I mean, I don't, I don't know what's going on in the school board. I don't track it super close. I mean, I, I follow it more than most people, I guess, but... How did they not know back in summer that they were going to have a, a crisis with school bus drivers? I mean, how, that's like the main thing is getting the kids to school. I mean, that's the big thing. It's like you got to get the kids to school. And I have a f- couple of friends who have kids, and it rotates. You know, a third of the schools have the buses. The other ones don't. I mean, they're having to leave the house at like 6.15, 6.30 in the morning because it's like an hour wait because there's so many parents trying to get in. And then they have to do the same thing to pick them up. They have to wait an hour, 45 minutes to an hour, which is just, it's just, it's crazy. That, that level of kind of incompetence is going on in the school board. It's happened. It's, it's not just Anchorage though. It's happened in the Valley. I know, I know in Fairbanks that this is, this is a nationwide problem. You just don't have enough people who want to drive, drive school. Buses. Well then, I mean, you would pay more. Wouldn't you raise the pay? Yeah. And they were doing that. And they're doing I hear that. some ads, yeah. you know, we're yeah. going from 20 to 25, but I mean, it just seems to me, you know, this is a market and yeah. we need to be able to get these kids to school. It's, you know, people talk about, um, capitalism and supply and demand and paying workers better. You know, they have no problem paying, you know, a lot, a lot of the people who complain about how much state workers get and, and wonder, you know, and we'll say, well, the answer for private industry is we're just going to let CEOs make as much as they, as they can. And that will incentivize them. It's sort of the same with, with bus drivers and with teachers is, you know, a lot of them don't do it for the money, but, they have to be able to pay their rent. They've got to be able to take care of their families and feed, you know, mm-hmm. food and pay their bills and things like that. And so, so yeah, it's starvation wages. And and I think you're seeing a giant reset in the way we, it, the way labor is done in this country and in this state. Well, I think I, I was read an article last year about um, with COVID and kind of the, you know, how the everything changed and all of a sudden, you know, people could work from home and there was, the workers had, you know, a lot more negotiating power and there was a comparison to the, the plague. And they, they said that the first time in history, when economists wrote this, the first time in history, the workers really had leverage over their employers was the plague because all these people died and there was just a labor shortage. The, the labor pool went way down. So the, at that point, the workers finally had some kind of negotiating power to say, Hey, you got, you know, you want us to work. You got to pay us better. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening here. You're seeing nationwide um, workers have more leverage, and it's absolutely what's happening. And and you haven't seen that. We have not seen that in in many many years. You know, this is what I do for living. I represent workers and fight for good wages and good jobs and pensions and healthcare. And all of a sudden now, there's uh, just it. The whole paradigm has shifted, and and in a way that I haven't seen in 34 years. Um, I want to ask you, and this might be kind of the conspiracy side of me, but they, they hired this guy, uh, Jarrett, um, the superintendent. What's his name? Jarrett? 
His yeah, first name, Dr. I think. Dr. Bryant. Jared Bryant. And he was from Houston. He's in his 30s. He looks very young. If you meet him, he looks like he's in his 20s. Uh, there was another guy that applied for the job from Sitka. Now, this is some things I've, I've heard. And the more I think about these schools and what you said, was he, do you think he was hired as the fall guy? Like, bring him, okay, we want to close these schools. It's not going to look good. We want to do this stuff. Let's bring in this kid from Houston, put him in there for a year. You know, he's, 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 he's got a mentor. I think, I think, uh, what's her name? Dina Bishop, or is it, is it not Dina Bishop? What's the other one? The, um, old super, the old superintendent from years ago. Oh my God. What's her name? She was like a real big kind of Democrat. Carol Cuomo. Carol Cuomo. Yeah. I think Carol or Dina or somebody's like kind of has to mentor him. Cause he doesn't have his, he doesn't meet, meet the requirements. He had to get a waiver about if he had so many years of teaching. Do you think maybe he was brought in as like the perfect fall guy? Blame well, him. Everything goes bad. Oh, blame the soup. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll fire him and we'll put somebody else in. I think we've got, I, I, I think we've got a good school board. Let me just say that. I think there are a lot of good people on there. I, they're, they're very active. Their job is extremely hard. I know many of them personally. Uh, and you see them at all the meetings and they show up at community council meetings. They have an extremely tough job. Uh, I can't say that that was a factor in. I, was, I, w- I will say I, I knew the superintendent um, candidate from Sitka who did apply. He was actually a constituent of mine. I've heard so many people say this guy. I don't he was even phenomenal. know. They said this guy w- was you know, the, the yeah. obvious choice. Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't involved in any of the discussions. I obviously wasn't involved in the interview process. When I saw the names come out, just knowing him and, um, I thought, wow, it's a slam dunk. He's going to get it. And, um, so I was a little surprised that he didn't get it. But, but again, I, I, I'm not in those, I'm not maybe, in those maybe, maybe, the maybe, maybe they don't want to make a local guy, the fall guy, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, um, I, I've met Dr. Bryant and, um, I, I know he's, he's working hard and, and, um, He's got a tough job. He has a, you know, they're, they're managing the school district is a tough, tough job. It's one of the largest, in the, you know, cer- certainly geographic wise, number of schools wise, extremely diverse, the most diverse school district um, in the United States. It's a tough job, do- tough job. Well, I, I, I really wonder how this is all going to play out because we're, we're in November here and, you know, there, there's the legislature is going to be back in a few months and are they going to, make the decision before that? Are they going to wait? Is there going to be more pressure? Is, is this a, is this a, another side of this? Is this a, a maneuver to pressure the legislature to increase the BSA? Um, oh, I think, I think there's, they, <laughs> well, they've said publicly in the meetings, they uh, have blamed it on the legislature. And so I think there's certainly an element of trying to pressure the the legislature. But when you ask them if we increase the BSA, will these schools right. stay over? They didn't, they didn't say anything. Well, that was the frustrating part is I've asked them several times that I asked them and in, in, I've been in multiple meetings with them. I don't want to say private, but I mean with, you know, 10 or 15 people on the line and the, the superintendent and, and a number of other district officials and some principals. And yeah, I've asked that. I've asked it point blank. If we get you the BSA increase, we do this. And, and they, they have never told me yes. They, they've never told me that they would, not shut these schools down if we got the BSA increase. So, so that's a little curious to me. And, um, you know, nonetheless, I think you're going to see strong support in the legislature to increase the base student allocation. I think we have to do it. I think, um, you know, we're, we're seeing impacts. But, but hey, if you're going to come out and basically, um, you know, pin it on the legislature that we're closing down schools because you haven't increased the BSA, um, you should at least say, yeah, we're going to keep the schools open yeah. if you increase the BSA. It's where, on record. Where, where are we going to be next year if the price of oil goes down? If 
we're not at the $90, level. Uh, yeah, it definitely makes things more challenging. It definitely makes things more challenging. But I will say, you know, years ago, well, it wasn't too long ago. It was probably uh, in the last in the last decade, eight nine years ago, and for and for decades before that, oil funded historically around eighty five ninety percent of our state budget, and now it only funds anywhere from fifteen to maybe thirty percent. So if price because, because of the permanent fund, the the POMV. Uh, uh, well, it's. I mean, a factor of a number of things. It's a factor of oil volume being down, the, you know, the amount of oil going through the pipeline being down. It's a fact of, you know, we changed the oil tax structure, and so we're getting less revenue from oil. It's a fact that we no longer, you know, we're, we're not getting um, $150 million because Hillcorp is established as a as an S-corp instead of a C-corp, they, so they pay no taxes. So, I mean, it's a variety of different things. But, yeah, oil does not fund anywhere near what it used to fund, and so that's why... It's it's been a little frustrating for me. I don't understand why people don't make this connection between their dividend getting cut and oil no longer funding our government. Brad Keithley does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know some people do, but but it's not. It hasn't. But but, but even even though it is smaller, way down from ninety, like you said, it could be ten or fifteen. But then this last year, and when Putin invaded Ukraine, it shot way up, and you know we saw this big windfall that we didn't expect in the revenue forecast. Which I, I I have to figure out what the numbers are, but you know over the over the look at the whole budget, you know, about five billion or six with capital. I mean, I bet I bet you're over thirty percent. Um, yeah, but the fact is, it the state is not nearly as reliant on oil as we used to be because we now are reliant on the earnings from the permanent fund, and so the permanent fund is filling that gap, and 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 so the price of oil goes up. It definitely helps the state coffers. It hurts. Alaskans because they have to pay more for gasoline costs. They have to pay more for heat. I just, I just got my, uh, filled up my tank yesterday and it was one of the first times, you know, how they, they cap out at $75 at the pump. I have a little Camry, right? And summertime when it was really high, it, it would get to 75 and it would stop and it wasn't full. Yesterday I filled it up. It was like six, it was like just 68 or something. So I said, Oh great. You know, finally we're down. It's been down a little bit from months ago, but still, I, I mean, this is really, I have a pickup. I mean, it's a hundred and, $120, to fill it up. You know, imagine people driving in from the valley every, every day. Oh, I can't even, I mean, I can't, you have hundreds of dollars. You'd be making a really good, a lot of money to be yeah. commuting. And people in rural Alaska, I've talked to people in Fairbanks, their heating oil prices just, just through the roof, thousands of dollars per month. So it, it's a real problem. And now you're hearing, um, you know, there, there's potentially going to be shortages in, in natural gas and Cook Inlet. And uh, Hillcorp saying they're yeah. Nat Hers just did a really interesting piece that RCA that. had a meeting about. He found he found an RCA filing about I think it's NSTAR and Chugach looking at hiring a consultant and to the point where they want to raise the tariff a little bit yep. um, because of the amount of oil and gas in Cook Inlet and you know importing LNG, which which fucking frustrates me to no end. When we have this huge amount of gas on the slope, I don't know about you, but I think the state should should have or should build the pipeline to Fairbanks. Just pay for it. What's it, five billion dollars? Borrow, borrow, bond it out against the permanent fund or something. You know, complete a third of the project. You can get some gas to Fairbanks. Obviously, there's that issue with the inversion. I mean, it's not a lot of people, but you're going to help with that. And then that makes it easier, more economical to go from Fairbanks down to McKiskey or Valdez or whatever on the on the rest of it. Yeah, you can do that. I mean, we the 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 crazy thing is we have trillions and trillions of uh, cubic feet of natural gas on the North Slope. We've got uh, trillions of cubic feet of natural gas right here in Cook Inlet that is pretty readily accessible. And if somebody were to go in and, and drill it, 
Um, well, they tried that years ago, and they got those tax credits. It was in the billions. Yeah. Um, to go explore and cook it because there was remember the brownouts, yeah. and there was yeah. the same kind of worry ten years ago. Um, so I I guess they can incentivize. Maybe maybe they don't want to spend billions of dollars to get on credits. Maybe they want to just import it. Well, that's exactly it. And and so the question is, how much is the state going to subsidize this? And shoot, I mean, <laughs> this is a point that I've made for many years: is if, if the state's going to incentivize drilling for gas or oil in Cook Inlet, for example, to the tune of billions of dollars, and then consumers in Alaska end up paying the highest natural gas prices in North America for the natural gas. Like at some point, when do you say, like, why doesn't the state just go out and hire some native corporations, for example, ASRC, Doyon, maybe some private contractors to go out and we pay them to drill it. You know, we own the oil. It's our resource at some point you know, this process where we're leasing it out to companies and they're saying, well, we can't, we're not making enough on it. Okay. Well, instead of the, us paying out billions in tax credits, maybe it's time that we just cut out the middle middle man and just hired some native corp. Why don't we, I mean, why don't we do that? We should, (laughs) I've been saying this for years. We should do that. What's the, I mean, is it, is it, is it, it, people are worried about giving, I guess, given, given the resource away, what's the opposition to it? The opposition will come from the industry who will say, uh, government shouldn't do that. And we'll, and people will, and fairly so, point to state boondoggles, uh, you know, the grain silo, the fish processing plant. Uh, people will point to those. Mostly, mostly ADA problems. Right, so. right. But, but the reality is that uh, you can hire an executive to do this and manage it. I mean, this really is the answer is, hey, if companies don't want to drill in Cook Inlet, you literally have, you know, you, you have enough gas in Cook Inlet right at your doorstep. You don't have to build a pipeline or anything. You could, you have enough gas in Cook Inlet to last you the next hundred years easily, easily. And so this is, you know, again, it's a frustration. Uh, it, you'll see industry come in and say, oh, you can't do that. You're taking away opportunities from us. And it's like, well, you have the opportunities. You have the leases. <laughs> You're not doing it. So, you know, it's time, I think, to change the paradigm. And, and it, again, it's, it's, being, it's being an owner state. It's, it's managing our resources. It's being a sovereign and acting like a sovereign and saying, look, we understand if you don't want to do it, that's fine. Give us I mean, the you went to South, You went to it. South Africa many years ago about this kind of, what, what, what are they doing? They're, that's what they're doing. <laughs> this, is what, this is what virtually every oil producing country in the world does. They, uh, they certainly, you know, many of them encourage private industry to do it, but at some point private industry doesn't want to do it or can get a better hurdle rate somewhere else. The, the government goes ahead and they go out and hire contractors or they have state-run oil companies themselves to do it. Well, virtually every oil-producing country in the world does that. I guess last thing I'll ask is, is we're here in November and a few months back in Juneau and there's going to be a new legislature, new, you know, same governor. How, how do you kind of foresee things going the second round with Dunleavy than, you know, the first round, it was pretty rough the first couple of years and then things kind of mellowed mell out a little bit. Part of that was covid <laughs> But how do you, how do you see, th- and this is the first governor reelected since Tony Knowles in 98. It is. Yeah. Um, I, so 22 years. It's a good question. And, and oh, 24 I, years. I actually look forward to meeting with the governor to, to have a sit down and, and talk about what this next session, what the next couple of sessions might look like, because he's in a position now where he can go one of two directions. He's, he's not up for he's you know i don't want to say lame duck but he doesn't have to run again off leash he's off yes right exactly so so does he you know does he tack to the you know prior pre-recall governor dunleavy or does he tack you know more to the 
I don't, I don't think it'll go that way just because of Tyson Gallagher being made full chief of staff, permanent chief of staff. Yeah. I mean, Tyson's not about about that kind of, and some of the other people that are around him. I don't think it's going to, it's not going to go back to like a Donna Arduin type thing. But yeah, that's the sense I get. I think he, you know, the question is, is he does he want a legacy? What does he want his legacy to be? And he has an opportunity, I think, to work with the legislature to do some really productive things. Are you surprised that he's over half the vote right now? And like Paltola's not? Uh, not really. No, I sort of saw it coming like that. I think I think with you had Gara and Walker split, split. Uh, you know, I, this is a case probably where ranked choice voting hurt hurt the progressives. I, I, I think it would have been a lot closer had you just had one candidate running on that side and able to you know, have a real robust debate, but I think it just got a little clouded and you had, you had, but I, but I mean, even with Peltola, I mean, you had Begich and Pat Palin and they split the vote. They on split the side. vote. But, right. but, but, but in this case with Dunleavy, he's, he's over, Peltola is really close. She's at 48 point something, but Dunleavy's, you know, over 50 point, whatever. He's over half the vote. I mean, and Pierce got, you know, 4% or 5%. So still he could have been even, you know, even but, more. And I think that, I think that maybe one of the things that, when the rank choice voting analysis is, is, you know, said and done, the, the, when you have strong candidates of a similar, similar philosophies in, in the case of Peltola, you had pretty much Mary Peltola on the left. And then you had strong conservatives, two strong conservatives battling it out and, and look what happened. And it sort of happened the same way in the governor's race where you had two left to center, arguably um, people running and Gara and Walker. And then you mm-hmm. had, Dunleavy, you know, with a free lane on the other side and similar results to Peltola. So I, I don't think it was that unusual. Uh, it's just because Dunleavy has a four-year record. Peltola has a no record. I mean, been there since August. So you'd think she would have done better just because of less of a, re- you know, lack of a record. Where Dunleavy, especially, I mean, four years ago, three years ago, I would have said, I would have bet everything I had. He wouldn't get, because it was so, it was so bad. The recall, everything was going on. And, and now he's... You know, over over half the vote. The power of the dividend. I think he, he delivered that's, a thirty big thirty six thirty seven hundred dollar dividend, and uh, I think that really helped him a lot. I think he turned turned things around pretty significantly. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, the family of four getting twelve or thirteen grand. You know, and people don't realize people in the political bubble don't realize the how important the dividend is to to the people of Alaska. The average person on the street, the average person in Muldoon, Spinard, rural Alaska. I mean, look what happened to uh, Neil Foster out in rural Alaska. He delivered. He delivered a, a massive, massive victory, and with that known port, mm-hmm. he was actively involved, co-chair of finance. And also, also he Ivanov almost beat him in eighteen, that and then Neil got solely the dividend. And then Neil kind of got religion, you know, and we ran against him again in twenty twenty. Neil won, um, but even this time, Neil was so kind of on the, you know, even though I, I think he really doesn't necessarily in his heart believe in that. I think he knows how it affects the district. It was, he's so he's so much aware of it now that he wasn't as the co-chair of finance, the House Finance Committee. He wasn't even on the conference committee, yeah. which to folks, average person has no idea what that means. Right. But if you know, if you if you follow this stuff, that's kind of unheard of. You know, the co-chairs of the House and Senate Finance Committees are always on the conference committee, but he didn't, he didn't want to have to be you know dealing with this dividend stuff. I think the dividend can. It's maybe not quite the third rail that people thought it would be, but it is extremely uh, important to many, many, many Alaskans. Well, I, I would just really, really wonder if it's going to end up staying this this paralyzing issue, or if it's going to be a fifty-fifty. I mean, the governor for a year pushed for the fifty-fifty. The legis- the working group kind of agreed on the fifty-fifty, which is half of the 
the POMV transfer, which this year would have been about 2,600, but then the price of oil went up and it, be, it just showed how fragile that is. I mean, you can all agree on something when, when it's tough and then when the money pours in, it's like, well, hey, shit. Well, this is the history in Alaska. Every time we get close and you know, to going off a cliff um, and, and to the point where the legislature is about to pass a fiscal plan or starting to come get some coherence or you know, gel a little bit on what a fiscal plan might look like, we have something happen like this where the price of oil spikes, for example, and bails out the state and it takes the pressure off the legislature. I think we were pretty close in the last year or two to doing that, to getting I, mean, I think if this Putin, if this Ukraine thing wouldn't have happened, I really believe they would have statutorily went to 50-50 because the governor pushed for that for a year. There was that big press conference in March of 2021 where Shower was there, Lyman Hoffman, Peter Machicki, Louis Stutz. There was like 20 legends. Were you there? I don't think you were there. I was not there, no. Were you, I bet you were invited there, weren't you? I was. <laughs> you did not show up. <laughs> but that was after that. Then the working group, they were all kind of, everybody was 50-50. And I mean, I, to me, that seems like a pretty fair compromise. It's still a pretty, it's still a pretty healthy dividend, but it just, it just, you know, takes away this, 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 this cancer that, that plagues every legislature right at the end when they try to pass a budget. I think you, I think it will be very hard to, to move forward as a state on the big issues that, that affect us, particularly the financial issues until you figure out the dividend. I think once you get the dividend issue figured out and, and, my position has long been it's got to be put in the Constitution because that is the only way that I think will be acceptable to the people, where the people have stability, predictability, consistency. Um, and let's have a good, robust discussion on what that number should be. Uh, you know, the governor's come out with a 50-50 plan. That was something that Jay Hammond had, had advocated for. Many have advocated for that. Let's have a debate. Some people want 25-75. Some people want a larger number. Some people want a full amount. Let's have that debate. And, you know, it's hard to pass a constitutional amendment. you got to get two-thirds the House, two-thirds the Senate, and then you got the people to vote on it. But I'd love to see something out before the people, to give people an opportunity to vote on that. Well, I'm going to be back in June. You're going to be back in June, and it's going to be, uh, we're going to see how everything shakes out with the House and the Senate. We're, today is Sunday, so we're going to all have this up in the next day or two. But Wednesday is going to be this tabulation deal, and there's about, there's the two, there's the Paltola and the Murkowski race, and then there's seven or eight legislative races that are going to be, uh, be, you know, use ranked choice voting. So you're, you're, uh, you're one of the ones that's not using just heads up and you're well ahead. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, a couple races are still, what do you think about the clarity? I, I, I've been writing about the Tom McKay race and the Julie Cologne race where they have two Republicans in there, but what do you think about the kind of towards your area, the cliff Grove, Lynn Franks, David Nelson, that's, you know, Nelson's at 43 or 44, and then Cliff's at, I think, 38 or 39, and then Lynn Frank, she's going to be, her votes are going to get, I mean, are they all going to, I mean, Cliff raised money, and he was promoting this vote for the, you know, rank two, but, I, you know, I don't know how many people are going to bullet vote, and I have no idea. that's a very small turnout race. It's like 2,000 votes. It's very small turnout. I I think the his, historically the drop-off in ranked choice voting in other states, other other um, other countries as well, is about 30%. So I think if there's a 30% drop off and you have the vast majority of the Lynn Franks voters who are ranked Cliff Grove second, that's probably enough to put him over. But I have no idea. I have no idea how it's going to play out. I, you know, it, it, it's, it seems like he's got a, a, a little bit of a challenge ahead of him. Just like I would say that Denny Wells is looking pretty good. And, and Tom McKay, he's doing, good. Denny's at 46%. Yeah. And that I bet guy, he didn't raise any money. Um, he's at 15%. And I mean, at a 30% drop off, 
I calculated that McKay needs 85% of of IBEC voters to, to, to rank him second. And people, you know, ranked choice voting doesn't always work out the way people, especially political people, think it will. I, I know I've talked to many, many people who have been down at Division of Elections observing, and they tell me about numerous people who will rank uh, Dunleavy first and Peltola first and then Begich second or Begich first well, we, and Peltola we, 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 second. We saw in just, August a, th- a third of a third of Begich voters ranked Mary Peltola second. Yeah. Which yeah. part of that has the Palin effect, you know, and that's a t- top ticket race. Like I think there's going to be a, there's going to be less drop off on the Senate race and the Mary Peltola race and the, you know, the Dunley, the governor race, but those bottom, uh, you know, that's what I've been saying. And Kale Green, my friend talked to somebody from fair vote and um, a while back. And she said, she predicts on the lower ticket races drop off anywhere from 30 to 60%, yeah. which, which at, at 50%, uh, Tom McKay can't win. Julie Colomb can't win. I think even Cliff Grow can't win if it's, that, if it's that much of a drop off. Now, in Cliff's case, I will say in the Colomb race with Ross Beeling and the McKay race with um, Ibeck, those are the third place finishers. They didn't, Ross Beeling and David Ibeck didn't have any money, didn't campaign. Uh, Lynn Franks did have some money. She was campaigning. And Cliff Grow was actively telling people to, to rank two. So that might be, if he does pull it off, his kind of saving grace is in, informing the voters, hey, please. If you're going to vote for Lynn, fine. Just rank me second. Right. He raised a he raised a ton of money. Two hundred thousand dollars. There was there was a huge huge push to try to get both the the to, to get the Franks voters to choose Grow and the Grow voters to choose Frank. You know, so they're one two, and uh, we'll see what happens. I I have no idea. I mean, it's crazy that that race because it includes the base has mm-hmm. like two thousand votes, whereas many other House districts has has seven thousand. Right. You know, eight thousand votes. I mean, and, it's like. It's like literally the, the turnout for all three of them is in the hundreds that of number, votes. Right. That number will go up pretty significantly in two years when there's a presidential election. Because that, that takes in a big chunk of my district where, yeah, it's Jay Bear. And, and Jay Bear in non-presidential years has much lower turnout. Who are your house reps now? Uh, so it's, Gen- Genevieve or no? No, no, no. It's, it's well, Donna Mears, if she... Okay, so you, you have Don Amir's Forest District, and then you have the... And then the Stanley Wright, Ted Eichhead Okay, district. so yeah. the, the, those two East... Okay, yeah. those are the two, two really close races. Two close races. Um, what, what happened to your Bill and Ted's excellent fundraiser? <laughs> it went well. Uh, Stanley Wright ran a great campaign. He's a, he's a tough, tough candidate. And he's, he, ran, he ran years ago before against he Ivy, did. so he had kind of people... It's some name recognition. Uh, Ted ran a fantastic race. He knocked on a lot of doors, but... Um, it looks like he's going to come up a little bit short in that race. Yeah, Forrest ran a hard campaign too, and he was ahead, and then these votes, other votes came in. What, what do you think about this division? I mean, I, I'm very frustrated with this, kind of these these tranches of votes coming in weeks after the election. They say it's going to be this day, and then it ends up being the night because they do one region. And I mean, I mean, I understand Florida, they make the absentee ballots be due on the election day, but it's like, my God, they have their votes done the, the, that, that day or the next day. Yeah, you'd have to change the law in Alaska. And there, there are some people who advocate for that. I, you know, one of the problems is in Alaska, we have a huge number of military. And uh, I don't want to say it's a problem, but it's um, they are voting out, out, of, out of state. They're voting overseas. And so... Uh, well, can't, can't, you, can't you allow for military to be coming a little bit later and everybody else be on top? I mean, I just, it just... I think one thing that's now with all this election-denying bullshit and all this stuff about integrity, this just breeds contempt or or conspiracies about all these people were ahead. Now they're, now they're losing. 
I mean, rank choice is part of that. That's a tabulation thing. But, I mean, you know, Forrest was ahead. He's behind um, Wolf in that race. And there's other ones where, you know, Kawasaki, he's above 50%. I mean, because these ballots come in and they tend to they skew to the, you know, help Democrats or progressives. And I just, if they were, even, even on election night, they don't count the early votes from Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or Monday before Tuesday when they vote. Why, why can't they? Can, Are you saying the conservative Dunleavy administration is... Is, uh, it's Kevin. I mean, it's, it's yeah, sure. It's Kevin Meyer. It's it's going back. It was before with with Bill Walt. Yeah, I mean, it's division of elections, and it's 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 just which is overseen by the the, the lieutenant Republican lieutenant governor. Yeah, no, I mean, I, it, I don't. I, I, I'm not. I, yes, it's it's a problem, and they should have after COVID. They should have really figured this out. Well, but, two years ago was disaster. Two years ago was a real problem because two years ago, yeah, they had they didn't count any of the absentees until I guess a week or so after the election and. And so you had Republicans winning in virtually every, and in my race, for example, I was, it was very, very close. And uh, I mean, you, you were, were you not quite losing? Were you, it you was were, close. It was really close, but you had Democrats down in just about every race. And then because they hadn't ca- counted the absentee. Well, in my race, before I dropped out, Von Imhoff was losing to that QAnon dude um, on election, you know, that guy who didn't raise any money. And right. then the absentee saved her too. So I, I think we've got, I think we've got a good division of elections. I have, confidence in them. I, I have confidence in Kevin Meyer that he's Lieutenant governor, that he's running a you know, clean, fair election. I, I don't like, I'll tell you one thing. I, I don't think anything's unfair. I just think yeah. it's the process is messed up. It's, you know, I think you want a system and there are certainly things that can be changed and tweaked. And, and actually we had a bill on the floor last year where my office worked with Calvin Shiragi's office and Mike Shower's office and Chris Tuck's office. It was a, a, a collaborative and the governor's office, quite frankly, and it was a collaborative effort conservatives, independents, liberals, progressives to, tr- to try to get a bill passed that uh, addressed a lot of election issues that addressed campaign finance issues. And unfortunately it died on the last night, but, but we had, I think some good provisions in there and I'm sure you'll see that bill taken up. Do you think there's going to be limits put in place for 2024 campaign contribution limits? There'll certainly be an effort. I think, I think there should be. Yeah, absolutely. Just yeah. so wild, though. Well, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand. You shouldn't have your elections that are won and lost because some millionaire or billionaire decides to to parachute in and drop hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars potentially into, into those races. those those that one that I uncovered by looking at the reports is that John, what's his name, the Arnolds and and t- these Texas billionaires they were right. dumping money into Walker, but also, you know, Kathy Geisel, Bert Stead. I mean, they were dumping in big Kelly Merritt, big five to ten thousand dollars to. Right. to to these state legislative candidates. Well, the irony is, is that in, at least in Juneau, the, the, that bill campaign finance was uh, objected. The people who objected to it the most got, were, got, got were, hurt by were it. the conservatives or Republicans who were the ones that uh, ended up getting financed against in their races. In yes. other words, it, it was the Democrats and the progressives who really benefited from, from campaign from you know, unlimited contributions. That's the irony of this. And, you know, as a Democrat, I'm sitting here saying, even as someone who benefited from it, I, I had some big checks. Um, let's, it still needs to be changed. Mm-hmm. It needs to be changed, absolutely. Right, last thing I'll ask, um, hypothetically, uh, do you think some announcement could be made here in the next week or two on, on, on anything going on next year? Hypothetically, I think that's, uh, that's a possibility. Yeah. We'll, we'll, be, we'll, be, we'll be staying tuned for that, so... Okay, Bill. Well, thanks for coming in. It's Sunday. It's a Sunday evening. I appreciate you coming in here and talking thanks, about Good all you. this stuff. And uh, if we don't uh, see you, we'll see you definitely in Juno here in the next. Are you, are you going to get you going to get new office? I mean, everybody has to get new office, right? That's how it works every two years. Well, you, gotta... you don't have to. It's uh, but 
you know, it's, it is something that happens every two years and, and, uh, you know, the, the rules chair gets together and, and, and it goes out by seniority and, um, what was your nicest, when you were in the majority, did you have, what was your, uh, yeah, I, I never had like a really extravagant office. I never had anything. What was your, were you resources chair? Was that your I was resources position? chair? Yeah. For a couple of years and I was state affairs chair for a few years. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, the, the, I guess the nice office, you know, the president's office is pretty nice. The rules chairs are kind of nice. Uh, the speakers. I like the speaker's nice. office because they have yeah. that big, that big meeting room, but then they have, it's like right by the floor and then they have that little door. And the speaker's office is probably one of the, yeah, probably about the nicest in the, in the building. The president's it's funny, the speaker nice. and you know, the, they have like the, I guess normally the speaker and the house speaker and the rules chair and the majority leader, they have their office right by the floor, yeah. but then the Senate doesn't have any offices by the floor. They don't know. Cause yeah. And that's, that's interesting. It's just the way there's committee rooms on the second floor that the Senate and the house both meet on the second floor and down in the Senate side. Yeah. You've got the fair camp room, which is a hearing room. And then you've got the um, Senate records office. Um, and, and that room inevitably when things get really tense, that room becomes kind of the de facto like, meeting room where they close the door and yep. they have little huddles going yep. on. And that's the, that's the Senate page office, right? Where the pages <laughs> are. And, oh yeah. They get kicked out quite often. And there's a lot of huddling in there. <laughs> well, thanks again, Bill, for coming on. Yeah. Um, congratulations on your, thanks. on your reelection. And we'll, uh, we'll see how things shake out here in the next few weeks. Great. Thanks. Thanks a lot. If you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.